Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Joining me on the podcast today, Superhumans, is Dr. Val Brown. And Dr. Brown has a long and varied history in the field of mental health, even before pursuing a PhD in psychology. For over 25 years, he taught continuing medical education courses across so many different disciplines it's going to take too long to read, but let's just say a variety of disciplines. And for many years, he was featured as a keynote speaker in numerous national and international conferences in the fields of neurofeedback, child psychology, total quality management, and so many others. He developed and published the five-phase model of neurofeedback, which is the first and still the only approach to clinical neurofeedback that integrated multiple protocols into a single comprehensive approach that could be used regardless of clinical presentation. Along with his wife, Dr. Sue Brown, the period three approach to neurofeedback was published or co-developed, if you will, and that approach was fundamental to what we're actually going to be talking about today, which is neurooptimal. And so what did Dr. Brown and I get into? Well, we outlined what is the period three approach as well as that five-phase approach. We talked about the differences between different neurofeedback modalities and how neurooptimal actually works with your brain in a way that involves, let's just say, a series of feedback loops, and I'll let Dr. Brown explain it later. We get into why NeuroOptimal doesn't actually have a, a board of results, if you will, which is one of my curious questions after going through this experience, why I wasn't able to see my results. And he explained it in a very logical manner. And of course, I get to pick Dr. Brown's brain on everything neurooptimal and how it functions and how people really can use neurofeedback in their life. You're going to want to stick around actually to hear his answer to the book that has most impacted him, which is all the way at the end. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash neurooptimal and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Val Brown. If you're watching this podcast on YouTube, you may realize that there is a bright green lamp behind me often. Many people have asked, what is it? What does it do? Well, it's the Somovedic, and when I plug it in, I get higher levels of energy. I put my water next to it because, well, they tell me that it structures the water, which means I have to drink less water throughout the day. I also find that when I don't have it in, I have less energy, less ability to get shit done, and I just enjoy getting shit done, so I plug it in. How does it work? Well, I can't exactly explain it, but the CEO has been on the show before, Draj Kochar, and he has been incredibly helpful in explaining this to others. Again, I have the Medic Green Ultra. You can go and get yours at somovidic.com and use the code BOOMER to try this thing out. 30-day money-back guarantee at somovidic.com and use the code BOOMER. Dr. Val, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a very long time because earlier this year, actually before I give a TEDx talk, I went through a an experience with NeuroOptimal and that definitely helped alleviate some of that TED talk, so to speak, uh, as well as some other things. But 
I left that experience with a lot of questions. And so who better <laughs> ask the questions of than you? So I, I'm really glad that we're here today having this conversation. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. So let's uh, let's connect some of the dots, Dr. Val, because uh, mm-hmm. I looked at sort of your background in clinical psychology, and then there's sort of this transition into neurofeedback. And, mm-hmm. you know, the immediate connection isn't there for me. So if you don't mind just kind of walking me through a little bit of how uh, the PhD in clinical psychology and everything transitioned into that neurofeedback role. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of a, a long story, uh, which has a long uh, front end, if you will. But when I was uh, a lot younger, uh, I grew up in the D.C. area uh, in, in the 60, early 60s mm-hmm. and uh, into the 70s. And, um, you know, that was that was the uh, New Frontier era of Jack Kennedy, uh, you know, the space program. Uh, of course, I, I lived in D.C., so. I was part of a cohort that was kind of in the center of the world. At least that's kind of how it seemed. But to all of us, it didn't seem unusual. You know, we played softball and football and frisbee and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But we also had all these interesting conversations going on because our parents uh, were, you know, high up in the Department of Defense or uh, national security positions or other government positions or NASA or whatever. And the wonderful thing about that time period, if you could keep up with the conversation, let alone contribute to it, it didn't matter if you were 10 or if you were 60, you were treated as, you know, the person who could talk the way that you did and could understand things. So there was, there was this whole group of us who were in on things as they were developing because you know, this person's uh, parents worked or ran Goddard Space Flight Center, or, you know, this group over here was involved in what became ISAR and Doppler radar systems for the military and and the targeting systems. You know, I could, I could describe how to calculate a translunar injection. Wow. That's pretty Uh, incredible. Back when I was like, like 10, (laughs) something (laughs) like that. Uh, (coughs) And uh, so, when I turned, um, you know, when I turned 14, I kind of had this vision of a system that would be based on the mathematics of quantum mechanics and that communication approach, as opposed to the Shannon uh, idea of information as reduction of uncertainty. It's a very different concept of human communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, now, you know, if we could implement a full-bore computer system that could compute this stuff real-time, we could feed that information back to the central nervous system in some way, and it would self-correct. It was a, a, The idea was kind of an auto-guidance system mm-hmm. based on just information flow instead of predetermined. You know, it's not like we were trying to get to the moon so we know where the moon is going to be. And it was a whole different concept. Mm-hmm. It was... Wherever we decide to go in the universe, this will keep us on that track instead of getting lost in the wobble and going off course kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then I sort of did the calculations and I said, well, it's going to be quite a while 
before yeah. we have that, that amount of computer available, particularly for you know end users, mm-hmm. for consumers. So I just kind of put that idea off on the side. And as it turned out, I went to Georgetown mm-hmm. undergraduate in psychology and philosophy, kind of covered the waterfront, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate in, in my first year being there to listen to Carl Pribram, who was a guest lecturer. And he had just come out uh, not very long before that with brain and perception and the whole hollow dynamic model of, of the central nervous system. And that he had finally discovered the correct uh, equations, mathematics to use to really capture that communicative flow. He'd been looking at the fundamental basis of cognition, perception, memory, how these intertwine. Uh, and it, it just didn't work out with the mathematics. It was too fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he intersected with uh, Dennis Gabor, mm-hmm. uh, who had come up with that model of mathematics and, in fact, had come up with the communication model that really is, is much more useful in many ways than Shannon's information. And uh, so as he was presenting all of this, I raised my hand and started asking him some questions about the mathematics of it because I, I kind of knew them mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, flash forward to, uh, I, I finally came back into the field because at, at Georgetown, we explored a lot of different things in psychophysiology at the time, mm-hmm. regular biofeedback. And, and, it, and then, of course, alpha was very predominant at that point, alpha training. But it was very rudimentary stuff because mm-hmm. of kind of equipment. Uh, at, at a later point uh, in, in the early 90s, I had a chance to get reacquainted with the field uh, because of a position I held. And I went to a conference, and there was a gentleman there who said they have a system that will measure global synchrony of the brain. Mm-hmm. And I went, great, hook me up. I know how to do that state. Let's see if it does work. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, it did. And we started talking about what he was using, what equipment it was. And it's like, okay, now we're in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now we're beginning to get to the, to the right place. You know, it's still way too slow, but okay. And I actually started using that equipment and it was in that time frame shortly after that I published the five phase article mm-hmm. of um, neurofeedback, which was based on the use of that equipment. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned that later mor- uh, morphed into the period three approach when equipment could handle it. And then ultimately into NeuroCare Pro and now into NeuroOptimal version three. Mm-hmm. But in the background was always this desire to implement this vision that I had had way back when I was 14. Wow. Because I, I, I became a psychologist. Uh, you know, there were a bunch of us that were in this cohort that ended up doing really interesting stuff mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, one of them actually being Bill Nye, who was my best friend at the time when we were growing up. Uh, and the wonderful thing about Bill, just to say, uh, what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. That is Bill. He's always been that way. 
you know, and, and it's it's so much fun, uh, very infrequent now that I get to to see him. Uh, but every time we get together within two minutes, we're, you know, little kids again, running around doing these crazy science things <laughs> and having a lot of fun. Um, but it's it, it always animated uh, for me the, 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 the pursuit of what's the best way to help people deal with the suffering <laughs> that's in our lives that frequently manifests through patterns of thought, patterns of behavior, you know, how, what's the way to really help with that? Because I also had a, a fairly strong background in a lot of Eastern practices. So mm-hmm. yoga, uh, Zen, Chan, meditation, mm-hmm. Chinese martial arts, etc. So it was, how do you really do this? And for me, the, the, the vision of neurofeedback possibility, along with the the desire, the commitment to transform suffering really just came together. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, I see the system as a literal incarnation of the opening uh, sutra, Patanjali's uh, yoga sutras, uh, yoga naradam, jitta vritti. Mm-hmm. So yoga is the release of the disturbances in the mind mm-hmm. or the ripplings of the mind. And that's really what it does. It's just invitations Mm -hmm. every time there's an interrupt in the stream. We're not trying to target an end state. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how that it, it, when the technology was finally getting to the place where interesting things could start, like, good, now it's time to get back in. Okay. Now I can begin to move on with that. Okay. I I would love to just kind of take a moment and, look at the, the, I think you call it the five phases and then the period three mm-hmm. approach. If you don't mind mm-hmm. just taking us through kind of what that looked like at the time and then how uh, sure. the evolution between the two happened. Yeah. When, when I came back into the field in like 90, 91, whatever, mm-hmm. it's right around that time. Um, the field was broadly <laughs> divided into sort of camps or approaches and pretty typically, that's the way <laughs> pioneering fields happen. Mm-hmm. So the the camps were roughly built around those who were oriented towards uptraining of target frequencies in the beta range or the SMR mm-hmm. range. Do you mind just that was explaining those? those yeah, because sure. it's been a while since we covered neurofeedback on the show. And just for the listener, just kind of explaining those sure. kind of things. The, the way at the time, and still this uh, persists, um, the range of activity that the neurofeedback processes target is expressed in hertz. Mm-hmm. So zero to 64 hertz. And, and the reason it's important to look up to 64 hertz is that a major source of noise in the training environment is in North America, 60 hertz activity. Mm-hmm. Of course, in Europe and, and other regions, it's 50 hertz because that's the, that's the frequency at which the current in your home and the offices all around you is, is propagated. And the thing about that propagation is that uh, mind current is in hundreds or a hundred volts. So it's a lot of power mm-hmm. at that at those, those target frequencies. 
as opposed to the, the activity of the central nervous system that we measure on the scalp, which is in the range of, of millivolts mm-hmm. or even microvolts. Mm-hmm. So when you try to discern the activity at those slower frequencies, um, it's sort of like trying to whisper across a gymnasium mm-hmm. during a hurricane mm-hmm. to the guy on the other side and him hearing it. The, the discrepancy between those noise levels is, or signal levels is, is quite large. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the bandwidths of activity from that zero to 64 have been uh, bracketed off into bands or groupings. And the first grouping that was discovered was the alpha mm-hmm. wave. And the reason it was called alpha was because it was the first. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens for the majority of people. Alpha comes into prominence when you close your eyes mm-hmm. because you're cutting off the, the primary sensory access to the exterior. And so the brain slows its activity predominantly downwards if it's functioning as it should. And that's part of what helps the transition into sleep. It's kind of this moving away from the outward focus, which became the second band that was really worked with, which was beta. Mm -hmm. And hence, that's why it's called beta. It's the second. Uh, And beta range depends who you talk to, what equipment they use, et cetera. But sort of a convenient usual range is 15 hertz to 18 hertz. Mm -hmm. Anything in in that range. And the 15 and the 18, 15, 16, 17, 18, are just conventional ways of talking about how many cycles there are. Mm-hmm. So 50 hertz, 50 in a, in a second, mm-hmm. 15, 15 in a second. Mm-hmm. So a lot slower than the carrier wave of line current. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the first band that was really worked with uh, in terms of numbers became alpha because it was so readily apparent and alpha when you close your eyes, it tends to be for a lot of people very pleasant, kind of dreamy or floaty, relaxing, etc. cetera. Uh, so it was a, a very simple one to start training. And of course, at the time that that started to become a thing of investigation was in the 60s mm-hmm. when everybody was looking at how to expand consciousness. Mm-hmm. Of course, that got rolled up into that, which led to a lot of people uh, saying, no, we're not going to go there. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's, that's too countercultural. That's too revolutionary. That's, you know, we're, we're not hippies mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, the, the other region though, was the beta region, which is exterior focus or thought to be, uh, 15 to 18 Hertz. And that was something that people were interested in because of attentional issues. Mm-hmm. If you have a difficulty paying attention, the thought is the more of the beta activity you have relative to other areas mm-hmm. in the whole spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, the more you'll be able to attend outside to the outside activities. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it's always all there. It's a zero sum game moment to moment. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just increase the activity in beta and have everything else stay the same. Yeah. Just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <clears throat> SMR is just below beta. Classically, it was seen as 12 to 15 hertz. Mm-hmm. 
but it's but it's actually a very uh, significant 14 hertz mm-hmm. uh, cycle. And that's above alpha, which tends to be seen as 8 to 12, 8 to 11. Mm-hmm. Depends who you talk to again um, and what equipment you use. Because what we measure is voltage, mm-hmm. right? We're measuring voltage. All of the frequencies are just a matter of accounting. Mm-hmm. And what accounting system you use kind of determines where the activity seems to be localized. Yeah. Now, there, you know, there's always similarities. You know, nobody's going to say, oh, you know, beta is actually one hertz activity. That, that doesn't work. But it's one of the reasons there are these, you know, discrepancies out there. Because uh, the thought is that we have brain waves. And actually, that's not true. We're, there are oscillators. They're oscillating circuits or oscillating uh, points within the central nervous system. But we pick that up as, as voltage changes uh, at the scalp. And the rest is just the mathematics that we use to derive what we find of use. Mm-hmm. Right. So the SMR, initially 12 to 15, you get a little more precise. You see it really is this, uh, activity at 14, center right around tightening around 14. And that's, um, that's much more body awareness. And, and it like internal body awareness, like where my, where my arm is as I move it. And I, I don't have to even look at it, but I have a sense of where it is. Um, the field of neurofeedback got started actually from SMR work um, on the part of Barry Sturman. He was uh, interested in looking into the architecture of sleep. So of course he studied cats. <laughs> as they're very good at sleeping. Yeah, they are extremely good. <laughs> so he implanted sensors, which of course you can't do to humans anymore, really, except for medical purposes. Um, and then he put the cats into this uh, mechanism. It's kind of like a, a large hamster cage. And it would kind of you know keep the cats moving so that they, they couldn't go into sleep. Well, of course, cats are really good at doing this sort of thing. So they figured out how to propel themselves ahead and let the thing take itself around a bit so they'd have these momentary sleep moments, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though the thing was going around. Anyway, it was kind of fun. And he determined that, in fact, this was a a very important part for entrance into sleep. And of course, it's the cat frequency. It's the frequency that cats do when they're just sitting there. So sensory motor rhythm, sensorily active, motorically quiescent, right? Mm-hmm. But they're ready to pounce at, at the moment's notice, yeah. right? Fascinating. So the, the, the thought there, that became the first uh, <clears throat> neurofeedback conditioning mm-hmm. that was done. It was a very clever experiment by, by Barry. Um, and it combined uh, operant conditioning and classical conditioning in this really interesting way. But what he found was he could teach them to increase the amount of time they spent with that as the dominant activity. Mm-hmm. And, and in my opinion, he should have received the Nobel Prize for that because at that time, the thought was you, you just can't influence the EEG mm-hmm. externally. Well, here he had demonstrated clearly with cats, so it, it can't be placebo. Mm-hmm. 
you know, cats aren't going to do what they think you <laughs> you want them to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was very clearly a successful conditioning experiment, um, reproducible. Uh, and of course, the world kind of yawned. Why do you think that is? I mean, is that just because there there wasn't any money in it for somebody patenting it? Or is it is some other reason? Well, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a combination of things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the primary thing is it was just too far off the map. Yeah. Okay. And and the next part is is what really put it out of reach for everybody, because uh, NASA approached him not long after he had finished that experiment and published it, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they were having a problem because of tetramethylhydrazine, mm-hmm. which was an additive to rocket fuel, which is extremely toxic. And so they were inducing basically seizure disorder in technicians who were fueling those early rockets mm-hmm. that used that much material. So they were trying to find out how do we how do we keep from doing this? How do we keep from you know causing harm to the technicians? Mm-hmm. Luck of the draw, they asked Barry to uh, research this for them. And uh, he being the frugal researcher that many of us <laughs> have to be mm-hmm. uh, when we do that kind of work, he recycled his subjects. He used the, the same cats to see if he could establish a dose curve. You know, when did that become uh, uh, to levels that precipitated symptoms? When did mm-hmm. it finally lead to death, actually, because of the seizure disorder? So he found uh, a dose curve. But he found this really odd thing where a number of the cats had a 10% higher uh, onset time before the symptoms occurred. And then, of course, death was, was delayed as well. And what, how, how is this problem? What's different? Well, what was different was the cats he had trained to increase SMR still persisted that training, that capability. And that was prophylactic, that prevented the onset of the seizure. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's what he said, and that's what the neurofeedback field said for a long time. So the earliest use in, in humans, really, beyond sort of the experimental consciousness-raising activities of the alpha folks and the attentional work of the beta folks, was in seizure mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. And... How, how, how increasing the, the ambient amount of, of SMR and, and increased access to that, that state, the sensory motor state, the cat frequency, as a lot of people started calling it, that, that held off those toxic effects mm-hmm. of te- tetramethylhydrazine. And so the thought was, well, let's do this with humans. Let's get humans to do that same training, right? Mm-hmm. Same kind of training. And see if that doesn't have an effect of diminishing either seizure intensity or duration or frequency or hopefully all three. And in fact, it did And wow. in, in, in the early uh, studies that were done. And in fact, that could be reversed. Now, of course, you couldn't do this kind of experiment these days. But by reversing that and untraining that increased amount of SMR, you found the seizure activity increasing again. 
So it was a very clear demonstration of this learning task that had a clear medical impact. Mm -hmm. It was just too far off the map. <laughs> um, it really was. This is this is fascinating. Uh, um, so this has all been an amazing history because I didn't know most of this information about neurofeedback. Your period right. three approach, when you introduced that, can you walk us through just sort of yeah. what that was and how you decided? Sure. Yeah, well, the, the five-phase model took all of those approaches, so SMR augmentation with low-end suppression, beta augmentation with low-end suppression, alpha augmentation initially with low-end suppression, then alpha without that suppression, allowing the rest of the, the spectral density to just go where it did, and then global synchrony. Those are your five phases. Mm -hmm. And they used different pieces of equipment for the first four and the last one. Uh, there was one piece of equipment out in the field at the time that could do the global synchrony, uh, which was the last phase. But you didn't actually need to use that. If you just kept doing uh, the fourth phase, uh, you'd get to the fifth in terms of global synchrony happening on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, but that had to be done in a sequence because the limitations of the equipment at the time, you had to set up the target bandwidths ahead, do your training, and then you could move and change to a different target frequency. And that might involve moving the sensor around because it was just one channel, really. Um, I, of course, used a central site for all of it, which was also kind of against the grain of the field because everybody was already into hyper localization and oh if you're training smr up it has to be the sensor has to be here if you're training beta up, it can't be there it has to be over here you know that kind of thing and i said no you know the brain works in total it works together you know it, underneath the, the scalp and all inside yeah you can compartmentalize it but it's it's a what Luria, a Russian neuropsychologist, called graded equipotentiality. That is, different regions can take over if damage occurs in one. Well, thank God, right? It'd be terrible if if all speech was only localized in one area and somehow that area got greatly compromised and then you lose all that facility. So the the five phase was very effective and it could be worked. It could be used to work with anyone for any reason whatsoever. So you'd start with the SMR, then go to the beta, then go to the alpha, then alpha without suppress, and then allow for global synchrony or feed that back directly. Of course, that took a lot of time, mm -hmm. right? Well, the period three was a way of collapsing that into three uh, periods of training. So we, we put things together. And that involved training SMR and beta simultaneously. Now, when, when Sue and I, my wife, first demonstrated this, we did that in a conference in front of a room of everybody. And uh, we had a piece of equipment at that point that could do two channels. So you could train SMR at one site and beta at another, and you could do it at the same time. Now, of course, for the rest of the field at the time, it was like, no, the brain can only learn one thing at a time. It's really? 
<laughs> that's that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I've I've noticed it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, actually, we're doing a lot all at once. So, you know, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, I get you. I guess you can't. But let me show you how how you can. So I set up this feedback paradigm that used the same tone, whether it was SMR or beta being given. Because one thing that was happening there, the, the reinforcement, to use the operant conditioning term, you would get a, a tone where you'd see a display and the, the line graph would go up or the bar would go up, whatever, and you know, keep the bar as high as you can kind of thing. And, and every time you get it, you get that electronic M&M of the ping, mm-hmm. you know, ping. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, keep coming with those pings. Ping, ping. Well, I set up this reinforcement paradigm that whether it was SMR or beta augmentation, that was being signaled. It used the same tone. So there's no way for a conscious discernment to get involved and, oh, this must be beta. Mm-hmm. Because the tone's higher pitched or whatever. Couldn't you artificially influence then? Like, let's say, for of instance, course. the the beta uh, side. Let's say you mm-hmm. wanted to train more SMR because the person has, I don't know, a propensity to multitasking. They need to focus more. Um, wouldn't couldn't that all couldn't that serve as sort of a feedback loop for the wrong side of the the training? Of course it could. Uh-huh. Of course it could. Mm-hmm. But the, the point of that demonstration was to show that you could train without telling the person mm-hmm. what they were supposed to be doing. Okay. And so, because no, the other thing was everyone thought you had to tell somebody, okay, now we want you to work really hard to focus here, keep focusing, really, you know, go for it. The whole point was the brain took the information in regardless and just did what the information gave it access to do. So, Sue could tell as I would make the change. She would send you people in the audience could see because there's a big screen up front where the the feedback uh, signals were being shown and now they're being fed back. Sue, on the other hand, was facing the audience. She couldn't see that. So all she had to go with was just the tone she was hearing. And after a little bit, when I focused the SMR, that that's what was being active, she'd go, oh, now you're doing SMR, aren't you? And then with what I would shift it, she'd go, oh, now you're doing beta. Oh, now you've actually got both going, don't you? And of course, it was quite interesting for the audience because they were, how is this possible? These are two incompatible states. One is exterior focus and gearing you up, and the other is internal awareness and slowing you down. How can you do them both? Well, of course you you can. You know, that's called life. Yeah. Um, so, So the... The period three was really the five-phase model, but compressed into three different clumps, if you will, of more things being trained at the same time. Mm -hmm. So SMR beta at the same time, and then et cetera, et cetera. And what we would do is in each session uh, at that point, we'd do a little bit of, of the period one, a little bit of period two, a little bit of the period three, depending on the response, because the equipment uh, was set up to show the entire frequency range, zero to 60, and you could see the impact. So like you said, yeah, you could you could uh, cheat somebody up to increase beta without them knowing, 
And is that really what you wanted? Because if you did that too much, they might get a headache Mm -hmm. or they might get so wired that they couldn't settle back down. And, you know, analogously, you uptrain SMR too much. They get too sleepy, too dreamy. Maybe they, they can't drive home. Right. So you could you could see instantly the response. And that was kind of the limits of what you could do with the equipment at that point. You could do one of the periods at a time, seeing the response throughout, and then modify on the fly how sensitive each of those training points were to the activity. So you could be nudging the person one way, then the other, back and forth, and do it very rapidly. Of course, that's the thing that Sue really became the the wizard of. She was just amazing at how she could dance people through these three different periods and and sculpt them. Of course, what I wanted to do was have the ability to train all of that at the same time. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was was basically... One way of talking about that original vision, mm-hmm. we, were, we were giving all the information back to the central nervous system. And if we did it in the right way, with enough uh, complexity behind the scenes, but simplicity in terms of the actual feedback given, mm-hmm. right? Like the one tone, whether it was SMR or beta, in that example of the period one increase of one or the other we could if we could simplify what the the feedback was but complicate complexify increase the complexity of the comprehensiveness of the targets and if we could make it Mm self-tuned now we've got the original vision from 1970 so it became clear that sue and i were going to have to um start our own project because none of the other developers at that time in in the business really wanted to go that way. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit too off the map for for most people. And we had, we had a wonderful conversation at one point because we approached someone who, who was a really good friend. Sue knew, knew him more than, than I did, but I, I knew him as well. I, knew everybody back in the day in the field because I presented so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we presented this proposal to him. And uh, privately, after the presentation, he approached him and he said, can, can God really do this? Can he really program this? And, and Sue, you know, uh, one of the things I just absolutely love about her is she will just say what's so. Mm-hmm. It's really that simple. She said, I don't know. I've never actually seen him do it. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it was one of the best things that ever happened because we got turned down by that company, Mm -hmm. which kind of forced us to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that was how we got to NeuroCare Pro ultimately, which was a first way of being able to have the possibility of doing all three of the period three approach at the same time, if you wanted to, mm-hmm. which of course got to be very complex because that involved two channels with eight different targets on each channel, which needed to be manually adjusted continually throughout each session. And of course, that was the thing that Sue was just the real wizard at doing. 
if she could just dance all of those. And it, it was an interesting thing how that occurred because, I mean, there are a lot of twists and turns in the story and a lot of other detail, but <clears throat> basically what happened was Sue was taking the clinical lead in all of that and was in that sense sort of the, the test pilot for herself before anything was done for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was doing the engineering work. I was making the changes and refining the software. And, um, and, and I was the original test pilot. I wouldn't give anything to Sue until I had tried it. Of course. And, and thought it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> you know? the true pioneer and, way, right? <laughs> Got to try yeah, it on exactly. yourself. Yeah, try it on yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so over time, it, we started to notice things that could be dropped out mm -hmm. and, and refinements that could occur. So one of the, the first refinements was low beta, that 15 to 18, was, was always the one place where things could go a little bit sideways mm -hmm. because it could be a little bit too agitating for some people. Mm -hmm. And they, they get irritable or a headache or you know whatever it was. And yet it also could work if you knew what you were doing, mm -hmm. you know, which, which Sue did. So Sue would just very expertly balance these things out and trying to teach that. But the, the point was to make it so simple that anyone could do it, mm -hmm. not count on someone learning that expertise. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that we started doing was putting completely bilaterally symmetric bandwidths or targets so we dropped the beta mm -hmm. and actually did smr both sides and we did alpha and we did you know a variety of things and that's all described actually through the website mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> we found that it worked because what we were really doing was giving information to the central nervous system and it was deciding what to do Okay. We were no longer driving it directly. You could, but what we found was that the less you tried to drive it directly, <clears throat> the less you needed to correct for overdriving it. And that's the fundamental difference between a positive feedback loop and negative mm -hmm. feedback loops. <clears throat> positive feedback loops are like what you have in your home uh, system, your, your HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And there's a, <clears throat> there's a, quote, set point that's the target temperature you want to be, say it's 70 degrees mm -hmm. in, in Fahrenheit. Well, it's, it's very rarely that the system is actually at 70, because when it goes too far below that, it starts to heat up. Mm -hmm. And then it overshoots the target. And then it comes back down. So it, and then it comes back down. And when it comes back down again, of course, when it overshoots, it turns off. And then when it goes down underneath, it comes back on again. And so you're, you're, you're always dancing in this range, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> Even though everybody thinks, oh, what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're targeting 70 degrees. Of course, that's what it is. It's like, no, actually, it's a nonlinear dance. Mm -hmm around that set, set point. Mm -hmm. And there's, it, it has to be that way. You're always overshooting yeah. the target, right? 
Negative feedback loops, however, are like what a well-designed sailboat does, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, I have all these little trivia points in my head. The expression three sheets to the wind <clears throat> is an old sailing term. Mm-hmm. Not surprised. It comes from the fact that the, the simplest rig you can have with uh, two sails, a, a foresail and a, and a mainsail, has three control lines that are known as sheets. Mm-hmm. So if you're three sheets to the wind, that means you've let go of all of the sheets controlling your sails. But what's going to happen? If it's a well-designed sailboat, it's going to point itself up into the wind, which is the safest place for it to be. That's negative feedback. Mm-hmm. right? We're not, and, and it will stay pretty well at the point of whatever the wind is even if the wind starts to veer or shift, mm-hmm. right? Human psychophysiology is built primarily around negative feedback. Yeah. Because it's built to maintain safety and that's how you do it, you know? And if you're, if you're interested in sailing performance, you might tune your rig differently, but then you have to know that because you have to stay on it because you'll get yourself in increasing trouble if you lose control of your a control line at a critical point. So I was always interested in turning the feedback process into a negative feedback process and use negative reinforcement if you still want to stick with that that term of reinforcement. Because every time you give somebody a positive stimulus, a ping or a tone or something, they might have a reaction to that particular tone. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that got changed fairly quickly when we could do it was our feedback became interrupting sound, the withdrawal of sound. Mm -hmm. So we had music just playing in the background. And whenever there was going outside of the bounds of the targeting, if there's too much of that variability, if you will, there'd be a momentary interrupt which really alerted the central nervous system through hearing. It's like, okay, what's, what's changed? Mm-hmm. Anyone out there who's been a parent, you know what it's like when the kids are playing and after a bit, you go, okay, wait a minute, it's too quiet. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what's, going what's going on? That's, that's the process. So, so Dr. Val, this is actually, those stories kind of explain a little bit of some of the questions that I was going to have about the experience, but uh, sure. for those out there who haven't tried NeuroOptimal or NeuroOptimal, it, it's, um, yep. you know, uh, I liken it to, and I can't remember the exact duration, but I went into a practitioner's house and essentially mm-hmm. uh, sat down on a chair and the music starts playing, as you say, and uh-huh. There's these interrupts, if you will, where the music drops uh-huh. out the buzzes. Uh, do you mind just taking uh-huh. us through sort of what's going on? What is the uh, participant experiencing when they're going through NeuroOptimal? Because I think you did hint at it a little bit um, as you went through that story, right. but uh-huh. I want to just make sure that everybody understands uh, what NeuroOptimal ultimately provides in that experience. Some people may call me a technologist. Some people may call me a data nerd. I just happen to love technology and all the positive things that it could do for our lives. And being in that position, it means I get a lot of packages delivered. 
about 50% of those never live up to expectations. They go back, they get returned if that's possible. About another 20% of those really have one purpose and that's it. And still further, there are those unique devices that kind of fit in our lives and just make a difference. And if 2020 was indicative of things to come, I want to be prepared for lockdowns. And one of the things that saved me, saved my fitness during this lockdown period was the Carol, C-A-R-O-L, fitai.com. You're going to want to go and check this thing out. Why? Because in eight minutes and 40 seconds, you're going to get an absolutely kick-ass workout That's two 20-second sprints, and I can tell you I am gassed when I'm doing it. But if you want to turn it up a notch uh, and do what I call the sadistic workout, which I enjoy at least once a week, it's 20 minutes of 68-second sprints as fast as you can. The whole thing's powered by artificial intelligence, which cranks up the resistance to meet your body's needs. And as an aside, they now have an integration with Peloton. So all the benefits of minimum effective dose exercise with that sort of unique, you secretly love it playlist that Peloton has. Check it out, carolfitai.com and use the code boomer for a nice, 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 nice discount. Let's get back to the show. Sure. It would help if you could uh, visualize what one of our training screens, the uh, training screen looks like, mm-hmm. because it's, uh, we call it the matrix mirror. And it, it has uh, bilateral frequency displays or spectral density. So you're seeing the total range of activity, uh, zero to 64 on the left side, the left channel, and zero to 64 on the right channel. Uh, and then overlaid on top of that are 20 boxes, and they're, they're literal outline boxes. And those boxes move in and out from the central line and actually can cross over the central line, mm-hmm. looking as if the signal's now on the opposite side. Uh, it has a different meaning, really. But <laughs> those boxes have within them, most of the time, a little white line. And anytime that white line goes outside of any one of the boxes, either too low, it looks like, or too high, mm-hmm. going, going inward or going outward towards the center line, <clears throat> that little white line changes color. And you may or may not get an interrupt mm-hmm. because it's not a linear system. Okay. If it were a linear system, every time one of those lines went outside of its box, there'd be a feedback event. Yeah. But it's a nonlinear dynamical system because the brain is nonlinear dynamical in how it functions. Mm-hmm. So you may or may not see one of those lines go outside of its box, and yet there's an interrupt. Mm-hmm. And you may see one of those lines go in or outside, and there isn't an interrupt. Mm-hmm. In fact, we don't even show that screen to the person, the, the client. No, the you actually, I mean, you're kind of laying right. down, right? <laughs> so That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. We want you to forget about looking at anything or even trying to figure out when or if or when not there's an interrupt or any of that because the conscious mind is the slowest part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. And you'll get in the way if you try to figure it out. So uh, just... 
There, it sounds like there's a so massive back end to this that you're not even seeing on the screen, right? And so, it, oh, oh yes, because yes, in order to create a something that's non-linear, because if it was linear, yep. I could just run a bunch of if-then statements, right? And that would be pretty simple. Mm-hmm. But a non-linear mm-hmm. dynamical system, right? The mathematics that go into this must be pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And there's several different layers of that. Mm-hmm. First off, the mathematics of what ranges those boxes, how they move in relationship to the entire uh, spectral density, that's based on joint time frequency analysis, JTFA, which is basically the, the mathematics that were used in quantum mechanics calculations. Uh, it's also the basic class of mathematics that is the basis of Doppler radar and ISAR radar and, and the kinds of look down, shoot down targeting systems mm-hmm. used by the U.S. military, but also around the world. Uh, it's what allows you to differentiate based on the time dash frequency signature of something, not just the frequency signature or the time limit, but the integrated time frequency signature of the activity. So... <laughs> And this is going to sound very technical, but the, the simplest way to describe this difference goes back to this idea of removing the noise of that 50 or 60 hertz. Mm-hmm. Because the 50 or 60 hertz is just a basic periodicity. That's all it is. Yeah. Now, they're little blips, right? Because we say 50, but if you do a really close analysis, you'll see occasionally it's 49.7, and then it's, you know... 50.13 and then because nature doesn't work in integers. Yeah. Great you know, quote. It's, it, that's just the way we we've been taught to think, mm-hmm. you know. Uh <laughs> so it is kind of funny we say 60 hertz and it's like, well, yeah, pretty much, but not quite. You know, there's a little variability in there. Um, but human EEG is not periodic. Mm-hmm. Or let me put it another way, if it is. That's a real problem. Yeah. That, that's like, uh, you know, the best way to predict an imminent uh, myocardial infarction, heart attack, is that there's a straight periodicity in the heart rate. Yeah, it's heart rate variability, and you want it as variable as possible, right? <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Well, pretty simpl- much. I'm simplifying the, the, it, obviously. You're simplifying it, but yeah, no, that's the essence mm-hmm. of it because it's a nonlinear dynamical system. Mm-hmm controlled by three basic processes that interact. Well, thank God for that, Mm -hmm. or else you'd be in real trouble because you could easily overshoot the max or undershoot the min, Mm -hmm. right? So the whole psychophysiology is set up that way. Almost all of it is negative feedback control loops and nonlinear dynamical in its performance. So self-organizing to a large large degree some systems more than others. And the central nervous system is par excellence, a nonlinear dynamical system. Mm-hmm. So the idea of trying to hyper-localize discrete patches of activity and train just that patch, that's an interesting belief, uh, which is not verified directly. Although the same mathematics can be used, JTFA, tuned a little differently to take global activity taken from a 
scalp and say, oh, well, probably this internal structure is responsible for at least most of that or part of that. Mm-hmm. And that's all interesting stuff. That's, that's how they use you know, the satellites to take images of the ground and say, oh, there's probably oil right here yeah. because they're taking that and differentiating the signal return. Mm-hmm. And same thing with earthquake propagation and landslides and, uh, you know, um, avalanches and all of that. Those are nonlinear systems. And a little difference can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And other times, huge differences can have no effect at all. Amazing. Um, with, with the device, there's something that I've in going through that experience it mm-hmm. so does everyone start with sort of a similar song and you mentioned something earlier about no longer driving the process so let's say somebody right. comes with a specific ailment if you will like let's say insomnia is something mm-hmm. that i've explored uh nerve or just mm-hmm. like sleep issues in general uh, mm-hmm. The the system is more set up to be on, I don't, I'm using my own words here, but like auto drive, if you will. And Mm -hmm. does it automatically target the problem areas or is it like, can you set it out to say specifically, I want to have hyper-focus and flow all the time, or is it more of an automatic sort of running experience? It's a self-tuning process. Mm -hmm that continues to tune itself moment to moment to the individual brain that's hooked up to it at that time. Okay. There's, there's no comparison to a normative database or what we think you should be doing. And, you know, when, when people talk about very specific problems or challenges or areas that they want to focus on or whatever, however you want to say that. Um, Frequently that can kind of get away from them because they don't notice everything else that changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's, it's about difference and perceiving, experiencing the difference. So we're never going to tell you, Oh yeah. This number of sessions, uh, because we're going to use this music or whatever, you're going to no longer have. But no, it doesn't work that way. It's more, what changes are you noticing? Mm-hmm. What what do you see as different? What do the people around you see as different? Because frequently, it's our life partners. It's the folks around us who notice the difference. and And we don't notice it because we're still thinking about one track. We're still thinking about one thing and nothing else matters. Well, everything else matters. Everything matters. Right. But that's not how we're taught to think or taught to, you know, you have to really focus. You have to really work hard. Well, um, yeah, if you're lifting something really heavy, that's a good idea. Uh, But in general, you're going to be really creative by focusing really hard and working really hard. I don't think so. Not at all. Yeah. So, so it, but you see the the other side of the challenge here is most everyone else in the field, I'm speaking very loosely here, but most everyone else is taking a kind of treatment orientation. Yeah. And the premise is, 
oh, you have headaches. Well, this type of headache, huh? Okay, so then we'll do this protocol so that that'll, you know, because that on average, the people who have that kind of headache do really well with this thing. So is that just kind of treating the symptom, if you will, rather than looking at, so if I were to extrapolate here, uh, treating the symptom rather than looking at the whole brain and kind of fine tuning the whole brain process. Is that kind of how I should? Well, it's, it, it, that's a way to look at Mm -hmm. it, but I think a, a, a more useful, more complete way of looking at it is that we are not trying to treat either things we think are wrong or things that we think should be better. We're not trying to do that. We're just giving the information to the brain about what it just did. And we let it sort itself out, which is exactly how everybody learns to walk. Mm -hmm. You, You can't really teach a child how to walk. You can support them as they start to walk. You can help them get back up when they fall down. But part of the fun of learning is those edges, is to learn those edges, right? I, I wish I had a video of when my, my uh, eldest, Sarah, uh, who's an amazing artist, um, just I love her work. Uh, in fact, that's one of her pieces on the wall behind me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but when she was learning to walk, what she did, we, we had this very thick carpet in, in our living room, and there was this table, and she was, you know, getting to a place where she could stand next to the table, you know, with her hands on the table, and then take her hands away and wobble, and then she'd fall back down on her tush, right? Well, this was just the thing to do. So for the next 20 minutes, she stood up, she sat down, <laughs> she stood up, she sat down, and then she started doing it around the room because she learned comfortable enough to just stand up and didn't need the support. What, I'm going to stop her and say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. No, 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 here's how you walk. No, that, that would put her back. No, it's, it, and the brain is the same. The brain, the brain can do that because that's what it's organized to do. Mm-hmm. It's self-correcting based on the information. When you think you're standing still, you're not. You're actually having many, many micro movements continually, and in, in a nonlinear dynamical dance of overall stability, which is better understood as resilience, right? And and so it's a resilience and flexibility dynamic that's going on. You need to be resilient enough to hold together, but flexible enough to go off into whatever direction at the time. Mm-hmm. That's not something that you just directly teach. That's that's giving the system information about its own process, moment to moment to moment, and letting it sort itself out. Mm-hmm. So this explains why no individual protocols, but also is this sort of why um, an individual may not see their data like as they progress, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that could... I mean, if you show them their data, are you risking pink elephanting the whole thing and just making them focus on one thing? <laughs> um, it, well, it's 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 unnecessary, and in fact, it's 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 counter necessary. Um, it's um, 
it's you don't want to do that because that reinforces this idea that the conscious mind should be in control of all of it. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's not true. You know, the research shows when you think you've made a decision, you actually already made that decision about half a second earlier. Yeah. Uh, Donald Hoffman's work you're, you're, is fascinating on this stuff too. Well, yeah, there you go. It's, you know, and, and it's, it's our mythologies. It's our belief systems. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the whole thing about the, the split brain and the left side is this and the right side is that, that's nowhere near as true as most people think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's based on a very profound misunderstanding of the earliest split brain research from Zanaga, where he showed, yes, if you've got the corpus callosum severed, that's the, the highest connecting level across the brain. After that, everything is the central sulcus, you know, the central divides are there separating things. Um, then, yes, you can specifically target one half of the retinal field of the visual field, and you can get people to misidentify subjects that are targets out there, target stimuli, mm-hmm. based on whether they see it linguistically or they see it perceptually as, as colors. So if you put the word yellow up in green letters and you focus the right way, you'll get people who are, have that focal on the one side saying, well, it's, it's, it's yellow. And then the other person will say, no, 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 it's green. Mm-hmm. So, of course, different sides of the brain, right? No, because what happens is very quickly, whoever, whichever way you start, whichever side your the focal point happens, you go, oh, that's yellow. No, wait a minute. It's, no, it's not just, oh, it's green. No, it's yellow. No, it's green. Mm-hmm. But in yellow letters or it's yellow in green letters, you know, whatever it is, because the brain organizes. It doesn't just stay with that. And it takes an awful lot of work to take even that first, get that first take even happen. Because the brain's always looking to integrate what it's doing. Fascinating. Yeah. And and the idea that we're training locations in the brain, if you're implanting sensors, yes. If you're doing surgery and you want to go after uh, a lesion or some disease pocket, whatever. Yes, of course, localization matters. But the recovery that can occur, even when it seems like the speech center is just damaged and is gone, the brain will try to do its best to compensate for that. And other areas dedicated, presumably, to other tasks actually start to take over those tasks as best they can. That's the graded equipotentiality. Mm-hmm. So we're we're basically working at that level as we're helping the brain recognize what it's doing. And it's it's sort of like we're asking the brain moment to moment, is this what you want to be doing? You know, the, the metaphor is used a lot of the rumble strips on the side of the highway. Mm-hmm. Right? The rumble strips just give information. If you're on the highway, if you're in the lane, and you start to drift over, you start to interact with those, it's giving you information that you're starting to go off the road. It doesn't make you come back. Now, if you realize that you really do want to pull over to the side of the road, 
because you have to take a little break. It's giving you information and you say, yes, good. I'm, I know I'm, I'm moving that way. Okay, I'll slow down even more, right? If on the other hand, you don't want to go up to the side, the same information tells you you're, you're on that edge. What do you want to do? Oh, no, I want to keep going. Mm-hmm. But the models that most people have, practitioners, the people teaching, is that somehow these rumble strips are making the thing happen. Yeah. Uh, it used to drive me crazy in the earliest days of like beta up training, just to pick on that one. Somebody said, well, I'm going to give them beta. Really? I'd like to see that. What do you do? Pour it in their ear? <laughs> serve it with a, <laughs> serve it on the rocks, right? It's a- yeah, right. Exactly. It's no, you're giving them information about when they increase relative to everything else, that beta mm-hmm. activity, because you think that's good. And maybe it is, but let's be clear about what's happening. Right. I, it's, it's one of the reasons I think that I've been seen uh, by the traditional kind of approaches as this real, you know, rabble rouser and, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary, whatever. To me, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Mm-hmm. Complex, yes. There's a lot of... There's a lot of back end <laughs> to that, but... There's a lot of back end to it, but yes. yes. So, so basically, every session you come in, and you can listen to the music that uh, comes with the system or any music that you want. It doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. And you can actually watch video content if you really want to. You know, that could, the system can be set up that way. And, and many of the trainers that we have who use this with uh, younger children find that the, the children bring in a favorite movie, whatever, and, and they'll, they'll use it as the background. And there'll be the little interrupts in the audio track as well as in the video it, it turns out um and the kids don't care because they're watching the movie yeah. whatever the movie is you know their favorite thing or whatever very cool uh dr val i want to be cognizant of your time here and so uh just before i switch over into the final four kind of rapid fire questions mm-hmm. sure who i mean what types of people have you seen come through neurofeedback uh, with Neurooptimal and, and sort of since it's been around? Because I imagine, you know, the obvious ones, focus, uh, sleep has certainly been ways that I've used it. But uh, what types of right. people, what I, I imagine all walks of life, but I would love to hear from you. <laughs> um, one of the things that I used to say quite a lot was, I, I don't care what walks of it makes no difference to me. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, at one level, it does. It does make a difference because everyone is living the story of their suffering. Yeah. And that's very important. And, and I understand that. But I don't do anything different. The system is what differentiates itself moment to moment for that particular individual at that particular moment. So that means at each moment in each session it's individualizing par excellence to what's happening right now Mm -hmm. because one thing that's really true in general and again kind of oversimplified but things that we say are disorders are actually rather orderly Mm -hmm. in fact you could think of them more appropriately as hyper orders yeah 
right? Because it's very predictable what's going to happen, right? What we're actually doing is, is helping the brain get out of that over-orderliness and return back with more resilience and flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because the orderliness is not really adaptive all over the place. It's very useful in some cases, some situations. So it's, it doesn't help to say, oh, it's this kind of problem that's come in the door. Well, now you're no longer actually seeing that person because I don't care what their problem is. They're much more than just that problem. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what their optimal is, is giving them access back to, is that fullness of who they are and who, you know, who, who they can be. Well, they already be that. It's just, it's not manifested in their life. And if they want to, their optimal can be a gateway for that. Dr. Bell, this has been an absolute pleasure. So uh, okay. I just want to transition into sure. final four rapid fire questions. And <laughs> okay. I, there's one in particular I'm very curious about your answer to. We just some okay. conversation we've had. Uh, but the first one is what excites you most about the health world right now? Oh, the... The openness to consider all kinds of possibilities. And that goes with uh, developments of, of new medical procedures, but also the openness now. I remember back when, if you mentioned the idea of meditation as a way to deal with a variety of things, you would get laughed out of the room. It wasn't that long ago, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And now it's seen as a mainstay for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Same thing with with your own aerobic training, your own home training, you know, and thank goodness that that that's intersected with what's been going on with the pandemic because Mm -hmm. we have technology that can support people in that process. You can participate in Zoom classes, whatever. That's all of that is really exciting to me that that openness is occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you need to focus on a particular task, what do you have anything you resort to other than I'm guessing maybe your own technology? <laughs> um, I have discovered and, and learned over the years that for me, my best way to focus on doing something is to not focus on it and just mm-hmm. allow it to happen. Yeah. Uh, and, and that let it flow. And that, that may not work for everybody, but it works for me. And, uh, I used to do that a lot. I I don't do the programming anymore. I haven't for a while now. We have a whole team that does that. But back when I would get stuck at some place, I think it through and I do this and I do that and I try it. And then I'd say, no, not now. And I just close up and I'd go play golf or, you know, go cycle or do yoga or or read or do or go to sleep. I mean, anything. And then when I come back, I go, oh, yeah, of course. And then I know what to do. So it's just that's what works for me. Favorite book or book that has most impacted your life and how you show up to it? Oh, gosh. Um, I think one that really impacted me, um, and it's, it's kind of come and gone in a lot of ways, uh, but it's this little book by G. Spencer Brown. The title is Laws of Form. 
Okay. Uh, and uh, he was uh, a student of Bertrand Russell. Um, and um, in fact, <laughs> married uh, Bertrand, one of Bertrand's uh, granddaughters, if I'm not mistaken, if I have that right. Um, but um, he solved the central issue that Russell and Whitehead couldn't come to grips with, uh, mm -hmm. really, in the, in the law of types. But it's the Laws of Form is this brilliant book, which is so simple that it's incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. And it, just even the first chapter of it is enough to get really thinking about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. and, and how come, how come it's space-time? And how come time isn't just, you know, one more Cartesian uh, dimension? How come reality isn't, you know, the, the, the aquarium that moves along a temporal line? Mm-hmm. And, and how, how do you really work out paradox? What's the nature of paradox? So it's, it's and, and of course, it's all very visual too. And I'm, I'm a very visual kind of thinker and, and person. So the, the, the picture images are especially evocative for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm gonna have to check that one out. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my Amazon account, thanks you. Uh, Dr. Val, right. where, where can people find out more about you? Um, the best place to go is actually to our website because uh, every, everything is, is referenced there uh, and or you can then contact the local trainer uh, if you want to experience the local to you. You have access to the whole enchilada, if you will. And mm -hmm. so that would be www.neuroptimal, N-E-U-R-O-P-T-I. ML.com, or you could do www.zengar, that's Z E N G A R.com. Uh, the overall company is Zengar Institute Inc. That's really Sue and I. Uh, but the Neurooptimal is, is the product name, uh, and, and either gets you to the same place. And so cool. it's it, from there you can find out or begin to find out just about anything that. You want. Dr. Val, thank you so much for the time today. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Good. Yes. Well, thank you. I enjoy it. I, I have a lot of fun and I especially had a lot of fun in this one. So thank you. Thank you to everybody listening out there. Have an absolutely epic day. All right. So a lot of my questions were answered in that conversation through amazing stories. And Dr. Brown is such a great storyteller. If you want to check out Neurooptimal, you can go over to neurooptimal.com. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T-I-M-A-L.com. And if you happen to pick up a device, that's awesome. But if you want to check out the show notes to this one, they're at decodingsuperhuman.com slash neurooptimal. And superhumans, thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this one, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, head on over to YouTube and subscribe, and really just subscribe wherever you listen, and let me know what you think. Show notes for this one are again at decodingsuperhuman.com slash neurooptimal, and have an absolutely epic day. Always remember.